If we were playing a trivia game and I asked if you knew the name Gaylord Nelson, would you say yes or no? Oh, you want a clue? He was a U.S. Senator from Wisconsin. He served his state from 1963 to 1981. Another clue? What if I told you he was best known for creating an event in less than a year that had over 20 million people participating in rallies, marches, and other events? And that event happened on April 22nd, 1970. ABC News presents Earth Day, an SOS for survival. Good evening. On this Earth Day, millions have taken the first step to survival. You're right. It was the first Earth Day, and it elevated environmental issues to the forefront of the national political agenda. And Earth Day played a critical role in creating the Environmental Protection Agency later that year. It's amazing how the vision, passion, and pursuit of one can win over so many. Earth Day is now celebrated in more than 190 countries. Well, my guest today is one of those people who impacted many. So many changes have happened in our world in just one lifetime, where most societies have taken about 350 years to adjust and adapt to this modern world. For us as Inuit, it has been in almost just one lifetime. And so it gives new meaning to the phrase coming from ice age to space age in one lifetime. Her name is Sila Watt Cloutier. She grew up in a culture and a community dependent upon and in constant conversation with nature. But at age 10, Celia was torn away from everything she knew and put into a residential school designed to scrub her of her identity to make her one of someone else. But she didn't surrender who she was and why her people matter. Celia became a best-selling author and she's decorated with some of the world's highest honors. 2007, she was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. She's been awarded the Norwegian Sophie Prize, the UN Champion of the Earth Award, the Rachel Carson Award, the Right Livelihood Award from Sweden, known as the Noble Alternative, 22 honorary doctorates from Canada and one from the United States. And what Celia Watt Poutier has to say matters to Mother Nature, to you and me, and every living creature on Earth. Now's the time, this is the moment to seize for us to come together and do things differently. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Celia, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Mm, thank you for having me. We have so much earth to cover, from your humble beginnings to your time in residential schools, your best-selling book, The Right to Be Cold, and to be one of the most influential Indigenous environmental, cultural, and human rights advocates on the planet. So lots to cover. I really want to begin with, you truly are on, on a hero's journey, but the first two heroes I want to actually talk about is your grandmother and your mother and the way of life they provided for you as a young child. So just take us back to those days because I love when you talk about them and how much they matter to you. They were certainly my mentors in life and they remain with me uh, throughout this entire work that I have been doing. They live within me, really. You know, the fathers didn't stay in those years, you know, uh, that came up. Uh, either they were traders or, or, you know, Hudson's Bay Company traders or RCMP, what have you, and made children and never stayed. So I, I was raised only by a single grandmother and a mother. And even though they were going through this remarkable, you know, dramatic and traumatic changes in our world, 
I never saw them on a single mother's. I never saw them in a weakened state or a victim state. They just plowed through these incredible changes in our world and they modeled for us survival. That really was the grounding force that I had as a child that keeps me to carry on with what I do today in protecting a way of life because of that modeling I had in my early years by these two remarkable women who were my only parents that I have ever known. And was it folklore or was it true that up until age nine or 10, that your only means of transportation was dog sleds? Oh, yeah, that was absolutely real. I mean, we had no other means whatsoever. And so the first 10 years of my life, we traveled only by dog team. And being the youngest child, I was on top of what we call the chamotik, which is the sled. And when you had children, you had kind of like a box on top of that where the smaller children or babies would be in there. My earliest memories are being in there and hearing the crunch of the ice, you know, and the dogs and my 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 brothers leading the dogs out on the icy highways as we went to our fishing and hunting grounds, looking up at the sky as a little, if you can just picture looking up at the sky in this little box all bundled up in fur. You must have felt very small in a very magnificent world. Yes, indeed. But you know, there was that connection. You just felt this kind of a finite connection to the sky and to the sounds of nature in your daily life. And uh, you just became one with it. And, and that's what we do as Indigenous people. We become one with nature. We're not separate from it. What did the Inuit culture teach you about respecting nature? Well, I think by the very fact that we relied upon nature to feed us, not just in terms of our nutritious food, our country food, we call that, which has great values to it. It's not just nutritional value, but what we have is uh, remarkable emotional value to it. Uh, we have cultural value, educational value to it, and so on. And so what we were taught was to respect all that is around us that gives us all of those remarkable values that are so important to live and survive and not just survive, but we thrived and we still thrive in that cold today. And so the holistic way in which we connected to nature and being taught out there was not just to become proficient providers or natural conservationists, but also to build our character the life skills and the character skills that are so needed to survive the harsh environments we live in, such as to be bold under pressure, to be courageous, patience, to withstand stressful situations and precarious situations and determination and how not to be impulsive uh, because impulsivity puts you and others at risk. And so if you integrated that, then you've got this kind of grounding force around you in your life that you carry throughout your life. And we're finding the kids because it ultimately develops your sound judgment and your wisdom when you're out there on the land. We call that sila tunik, which is wisdom. Sila, it's so interesting how you connect the wisdom of your past with the necessary teachings of today's generation. The question, how can kids today apply some of that wisdom to their own world, their own environments? Those character building skills are very transferable to the modern world. And we're finding that the younger generation who have had that integrated and the built-in capacity to deal with stressors from nature and taught that are better apt to adapt to the stressors of the modern world today. We're talking about how we one can lead the strength to the other and, and, and create that sense of grounding for the young people who, by the way, because of the trauma, traumatic uh, colonial approaches that happened in our world and the, and the very 
tumultuous changes that happen to our world, we have one of the highest suicide rates in North America. You know, climate change, yes, ice, yes, polar bears, yes, but it's really about trying to get our children back on solid ice, pun intended, so that we can teach them those very skills, survival skills, resiliency skills that would allow them to embrace their lives rather than take it. And that's the human connection that has been the driving force behind what I do, that there is no separation between that ice that is melting and trying to get our children to embrace their lives and become who they are meant to be. How hard is that in a world where within arms reach a desire, every second there's an itch, there's an influencer, there's a video, there's something that where the grass always looks greener. How challenging is it to sort of remind the youth that what's more important, as you said, is that connection with nature, connection with the ice, connection with culture. You know, of course, we've got all of that happening now, the technology and the screens, you know, that our kids are also on so much more. In fact, though, not everyone is lost in that world as well. We can, we have been able to, in many ways, balance both worlds as well, um, where we are still hunting and fishing and families are still out there on that ice and snow, fishing and hunting and teaching the younger generation. You know, when I look out the window in my homeland, you see every single day someone preparing to go out on the land. So it's not like we've really disconnected from it. We're still a hunting, gathering, fishing people. And that's why it's so important to maintain that way of life, because with all the turmoil going on and the chaos going on in the outside forces that come to us, it's really important for us to keep our cultural uh, heritage going in that way because of those different values that it adds to our lives on a daily basis. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Why have we come from such a powerful, resilient, ingenious culture to this place now, so dependent on institutions and processes and substances? Where did we lose our way? My guest today is Sila Watt-Cloutier. She's the best-selling author of The Right to Be Cold, the recipient of the Region Sophie Prize, the UN Champion of the Earth Award, and so many more accolades. But I want to now move to when you're age 10 and your life has turned upside down when you're sent away to residential school. What do you remember about that time? The first two years were actually with a family in Nova Scotia, and then three years, Churchill, Manitoba, residential school, and then three years in Ottawa in a city. Even just the journey of that eight out in those days, these were, you know, older aircrafts coming out of the Arctic, you know, seven, eight hours from Kujuak, where I was born, to Montreal. 10 years old with my other friend who's also 10. My memory of that traumatic, the trauma started right on the airplane. I was so violently sick from motion sickness that I had to be put on an oxygen mask by the flight attendant. And throughout that, I was just crying for my mother. Then we land and we we have to fly over to Halifax uh, to Nova Scotia for with another aircraft. And I'm still very weak, weakened. And then a four-hour drive to where we were going to live with this family. I was in bed for three days. I couldn't eat. That was my introduction to Southern living without my family, without my community, without my culture. Looking back now, how did your mom come to terms with the fact that her children were being ripped away from her and 
with the whole idea is to kind of strip you of your identity. And they were these subtle, um, you know, coercion, you know, of families to approve. So obviously they had convinced my mother and my friend Lizzie's parents that this was the best thing for us. You know, remember this was in the 60s. And if you know about the First Nations of our country, they, they call that the 60 scoop, where it was very blatant and evident and brutal uh, and abusive. The First Nations people went through where they were taken away at a very young ages of like even newborn almost, you know, Inuit were less taken away in great numbers, uh, such as the First Nations people were. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we were part of that. And I'm investigating that now at this grand age of 69 as to how did that happen? How did that happen? Now I have a 10 year old grandson and I cannot imagine, I cannot fathom for one second that he would be sent off somewhere to live with strangers in the hands of people he didn't know. But imagine for us, you know, our we lost our language. We had to gain it back. Uh, but I think it was very hard for our families to even say no to the authority, you know, that uh, that was there at the time, the government that was doing this kind of, you know, scanning which children would have the potential to become leaders and go back home and lead. And did it change your relationship with your mom with your culture when you'd come back at school breaks and such that because you'd been force fed or or taught a completely different way of life did it cause confusion inside you you know when you're a child growing up you don't necessarily articulate what you're going through because it's hard to pinpoint or to to put a name or or recognize the trauma that you're going through and what you've gone through and it's only i think in my adult life when i started to really heal that I had to revisit those places. And even to this day, sometimes the memories crop up and I go, ah, oh, this is why I do things the way I do, or this is why I think the way I am or feel the way I am, or this is a trigger for me, realizing that they were connected to some of those childhood traumas. And you create patterns in your life that are survival-based, you know, by not knowing really where that, that comes from. And so I, I'm still a work in progress at this age where you can really recognize the way in which you do things and why you do them, which can be very trauma related. The interesting thing is you put so many wonderful things in your knapsack growing up, you know, learning how to survive, learning how to be in a constant conversation with nature. You're thrown into the residential schools. All of this seems to come together because after the your time in the residential schools, first you become a social worker, but really what your life becomes is as an advocate for your community and not just for yeah. the environment, but for your culture and such. Those opposing forces, if you hadn't had them, do you think you would have raced down this path that you've raced and become such a global force? I think when I started to really heal and, and address these issues of my childhood and, and the fatherlessness and all of those things, you know, that one does to... Uh, to try to recognize one's patterns and the way in which you define your life and how you move into places to try to uh, uh, salvage, you know, what you lost, all of those things and, and soul search, so to speak, and try to address those holes in your soul. I think you start to see a pattern. And I think what happened for me in my healing process is that I started to recognize these patterns and, and I wanted to do different and when you do, I think when you start to tap into your soulful journey, your spiritual journey, you start to really be 
how can you say, shown the path in which you should be going or the direction that you could be going to make a difference in the world? Because we all have a unique gift to give in our lives. And I think that was one of those moments, you know, or many moments that I had as I was healing. As a child surrounded by oppression, do you recall having dreams of doing more and becoming more? I've always wanted to be of service of some kind, to give back. Even as a very young age, I wanted to be a nurse and then a doctor because I saw my mother in that service role, modeling strength and and, and determination to survive and, and thrive in a world that really was very difficult for her in a transitioning time. And uh, right throughout her life, I saw her strength. I had that modeling, which allowed me to continue on even in my darkest moments. And as you, you know, I have written a book that is a memoir uh, that chronicles all of these challenges. And I think whatever I lost as a child, I relearned when I was in these leadership positions of determination, of grit and stamina and, and courage, you know, to be able to stand up to the world that I felt was really limiting and negating a way of life and destroying a way of life by their inaction to address environmental degradation and uh, the, the issues of climate change. I mean, we were poisoned from afar. We, we you know, as in my book, the, the persistent organic pollutants making their way through in the 80s and in in the, through the weather patterns into our food chain uh, made for uh, poisoning the nursing milk of our mothers, where they had to think twice about nursing their babies, the very essence of life. And so the mother in me and the soon to be young grandmother in me really kicked in. That's where my grandmother and mother come in and, and to just guide me in that way, uh, even spiritually, because although my mother was still around when I started that work, it was an important piece as a woman and a mother to be able to really stand up uh, for the health of people. Because these issues of toxins, these issues of CO2, they're, they're not just about politics. They're not just about economics and science. This is a human, human health, urgent human health matter uh, where uh, we had to really address this issue. So I put a human face to that issue at the UN Global Treaty that led to the Stockholm, successful Stockholm Convention. And then, of course, with climate change, I pioneered the work and connected climate change to human rights with a legal petition to ensure that the world was taking us seriously and, and that they needed to take a good look at themselves uh, as large countries, uh, not addressing this issue of climate change as urgently as they needed to. So when was this happening? Because in 1995, you took on the role of the Canadian president of the Inuit Circumpolar Conference. What did that involve? Certainly, I didn't aim to be in that role. Uh, I often say, you know, it's not about what you're seeking out there in the role that you're meant to play in this world of ours, but that it finds you. I had never wanted to enter into the arena of politics, uh, but nonetheless, I had been elected in my own region uh, under the Makivik Corporation at the time as a corporate secretary and had uh, ran on trying to do something about youth issues and left a legacy with a, a youth video that called Inuit um, Spirit, the ca Capturing Spirit, the Inuit Journey. And while I was in that role, I was invited as a, as a regional leader, invited to Alaska at one of our IC Inuit Circumpolar Council assemblies. We Inuit have this assembly or this uh, every four years to address the issues that were impacting Inuit of the world. We're not that many, but we're in Greenland, we're in Alaska, we're in Russia, and we're in Canada. And we're about 165,000 
total at the top of the world. That organization represents and the interests and rights of Inuit of the world. So right after I was elected to my region, I ended up being elected to represent Canada. And, and I became the president of, of the Canadian branch. Four years later, I became the chair of the four, the rotating chair that represents the four countries. And that that's that's the role that I had for 11 years altogether, seven years and then four years. So you take on this incredibly influential and important position. What did that mandate require you to do? It was my mandate, you see, internationally to defend the rights of, of, of our people. And that's how I got involved at the UN level, because we have an observer status there under ICC, Inuit Circumpolar Council. And the negotiations for the UN Stockholm Convention was just starting as I got there in that role. And so I hit the ground running. And it was almost overnight that I was out there, uh, very visible, very voiceful, as the spokesperson for the Coalition of Indigenous Peoples of the Circumpolar North on this issue of negotiating these dirty dozen, what we call the dirty dozen, these persistent organic pollutants that come from pesticides or byproduct of, of industry from around the world that were making their way up through the weather patterns into the Arctic sink, where it's too cold to go back up in the atmosphere and ended up in our food chain, our marine mammals in particular, that we rely on for nutritional value, but also that keeps us warm in minus 40. For us, it became that urgent health matter. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. When we return, I asked Celia Watt-Puchet to talk about the state of the Arctic and what must be done. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. I want to congratulate RBC on the launch of the RBC Climate Action Institute. Canada needs more dedicated approaches to climate policy and action across agriculture, energy systems, buildings, and the RBC Climate Action Institute will be the place for advancing climate smart ideas to help Canada reach net zero. Mother Nature and the future of our planet, well, that matters to you, to me, and to RBC. If working apart, we are force powerful enough to destabilize our planet, surely working together we are powerful enough to save it. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Celia Wacluche. She's won an Order of Canada, the Right Livelihood Award, and what she has done to defend our environment and the rights of the Inuit is Chatter That Matters. And your narrative has always been, instead of just putting it all into one lane, for example, environment, what I am so impressed by when I listen to you time and time again is how you expand the narrative so that people feel, they understand, they, they realize that there's a cultural consequence, there's a, a life and death consequence, there's an environmental. Does that come naturally to you? Because to me, I think part of your success in getting some of these policies changed has been to open people's, not only their minds, but their hearts to the damages that could be created. It comes not just from recognizing the connections that come to be, you know, in, in our common humanity and the interconnectedness of all things. But I think it also comes from the indigenousness of our world that sees these connections, have lived these connections and continue to live these connections, that everything is interrelated and interconnected. And, and I've been criticized in a way for being too polite in my messaging. But in reality, this is how I was raised. 
you know, I saw my 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 grandmother, my mother in their calm state, even though there was a lot of turmoil around us with the transitioning way in which we went from from, you know, living out on the land to what we live today of the oppression, the suppression, all of the things, the colonial approach that the world had on us. I saw the women in which how they presented themselves and how they survived and thrived with this sense of calm and grounding that lives within me. Bring people in to understand so that they are able to see that we're all interconnected and that we can all make a difference together as a common humanity. Do you think having those influences in your life, your, your grandmother and your mother, did, did it help you form how you lead? How you teach others to face today's challenges as a woman, not never mind as an indigenous woman, but as a woman, we tend to do things differently in that way when we lead or put into leadership positions. And one of the things that I have really found a very uh, helpful to me in recent times, even this year, is to really articulate that kind of approach that seems to work much better, in my opinion. And this isn't about male bashing whatsoever. We are, I'm from a culture that we revere our hunters. That's not about that. But it's just the way in which women, uh, as, as, as Elizabeth Lesser, one of the great authors uh, that I've read her book, Cassandra Speaks, said, when women are the storytellers, uh, the human story changes. The way in which we lead, you know, which is much more about strength rather than force, uh, being outraged, which she calls is a holy anger, uh, rather than rage, which is like a wildfire. I have been true to that, to that essence and that true values that I was raised uh, to do things with that makes for people wanting to listen rather than shutting them down. I try to open the hearts and minds of people because for me, I think it's really important now with everything that's happening, especially with the pandemic that's been trying to teach us so much about what we've done to our planet. Uh, it's time now for us not just to think our way through these this crisis, but to feel our way through. And it is from the heart, I think, where all change does happen. And we need to continue to move in that direction. So where does humanity go from here? How do we as a species feel our way to a better world? A year and a half ago, right in the middle of the pandemic, I was asked to deliver a virtual keynote address to uh, 1,200 scientists uh, from 37 countries as a keynote speaker, and it was hosted by Portugal. And I thought this was an important time because scientists have a huge role to play in all of this, but they work a lot with their heads. And I had come across a quote from one of their own scientists from America, Gus Speth, if you've heard of him, great scientist. Gus said this, I used to think that top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, environmental collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong, he said. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Well, well, they lapped it up because these are the moments where we're all trying to change our perspective or at least dig deeper into our soul, into our spirit to say, what do we need to do? as a common humanity, to shift what is happening to us today. Everybody has been impacted by the pandemic. I'm reminded of a TED Talk of yours where you state, this is not unlike the Indigenous children 
or anyone who's suffered trauma. Without care, a space to heal, or an effective coping mechanism, self-destructive behavior is inevitable. And you connect that with how our planet's reacting. Planet trauma, human trauma are one of the same. And so people have to understand these issues because I think it's really important that uh, now that we're in this place with the pandemic, the pandemic really is a grim reminder of how interdependent we all are and how we're certainly we have known in the Arctic now that we're not set apart from the rest of the world. And the pandemic has broken open even more of these unresolved um, issues of racism and social injustices, not just in the indigenous communities, but certainly in the black communities as well. And many countries have been fully exposed for those outdated racist policies and uh, approaches, which are putting even more at risk. You know, many people who are already very vulnerable with weak health conditions and weak health systems in this world. So now is the time, you know, it's a time for pause. There will be more viruses driven by climatic changes and the warming of our planet. So we've got to continue to be vigilant, to do the right things together. We're all in it together. And within this pause, what should we be focusing on? For 25 years, uh, 27 years now, I've been doing this work to try to signal to the world what is happening to our planet through the lens of the Arctic. The Arctic is the cooling system for the planet. It is the air conditioner, if you will, and it's breaking down. It's causing the hurricane, the intense hurricanes, the, the ocean currents are changing, the warming is changing in the oceans, that the oceans are the drivers of climate change. And so the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the floods, the fires, the droughts, all of that is connected to the breakdown of the Arctic ice and glaciers and Greenland ice that is on land is creating a sea level rise in many other parts of the world. So what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. We've got to make that connection. And if we can make it through the human heart, the heart issues, and not just think, try to think our way through, because you go to these huge COP meetings, you know, the UN COP meetings, where it's mostly bureaucrats, when they go there, their intention is to keep status quo and to fight one another. But if they only went there to say, let's do things differently. And one of the ways in which we're looking at in the Arctic now, and I hope it will, uh, and it's being done, and I say this in all of my talks, conservation economies. Why couldn't we move in that direction? Instead of digging up the, the sacred land in the Arctic for the accessibility of the rich resources that are now surfacing as a result of the melt of ice, we that way we would just be adding to the problem that we face already and adding to the CO2s in the atmosphere. But if we could explore conservation economies where our hunters who are so undervalued could be protecting and conserving the lands and waters in that area and be paid to do it, it would bring back their dignity and their sense of self-worth that was so oppressed and taken away through all of the historical traumas that we have lived in the Arctic. What can we do personally as individuals to take baby steps towards better conservation, better values, a better planet. Start with yourself. Start with the personal transformation that is required within each and every one of us as individuals to be able to make a difference and to find our essence and, and our role in life to, to help one another and to bond and connect from the heart, all of these issues. And, per, and Marianne Williamson says it best when she says, personal transformation can and does have global effects. 
as we go, so goes the world for the world is us. And the revolution that will save the world is ultimately a personal one. And so, yes, things will happen slowly, but if we are to reach reconciliation with Indigenous peoples of the world, then it will happen at the speed of empathy, and it will happen at the speed of trust. Meaning, the more people empathize and understand at a deeper level what has happened to the history of Indigenous people who know about sustainability, who know about protecting nature and wildlife and all that we live in, our planet, with a great deal of love and respect, then let's do that. You know, let's realign with Indigenous values and principles and give us that chance to shine and to be able to to share our wisdom to a world that is lacking. Even in our world, we're finding with the problems that we have with our young people, with suicide and addictions and violence and so on, is that culture is our medicine. That's what we need to tap back into. That's why we fight to defend our right to be cold. And I'm suggesting that what the world seeks and needs is indigenous wisdom. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And here we are because the ice to us is not just mobility and transportation, but it is a very big part of our identity, huge part of our identity. It is our life force. It is our highway that brings us out to the environment where we get our organic food. My guest is Celia Watt-Cluche, an advocate for the environment and for Indigenous rights and one of the most respected voices on the planet. Let's talk about the wisdom and and because you also wrote a very powerful book in 2015 Mm -hmm. and you just use that phrase, the right to be called. One woman's story Mm -hmm. of protecting her culture, the Arctic and the entire planet. It's a memoir but it's also a message to the planet. What I do really is humanize the issue of climate change. The world has tended to see the Arctic only through the lens of its wildlife and its ice. And very rarely in the beginning of my work 27 years ago, when I would go to conferences, would I see the image of people of the Arctic. I would only see images of polar bear. I would see images of the ice. And so for me, it was really important to put the human face to the issue of the toxins issue that I was working on at the UN level and the climate change on the human rights level to humanize this issue in that way. Because in the end, what connects us all in this world today is the future of our children and our grandchildren. And so that maternal instinct in me uh, really kicked in and kicks in still to this day. So the the story that I told in my, is to try to guide people into understanding that we all have struggles in, in our human lives and that we need to just be able to heal those parts of ourselves that need healing and really see one another as connected as one. We share this atmosphere. We share the waters. We share the air. We share everything on this earth together and that we need to be doing things together. And so this holistic approach, you know, that Inuit have in teaching our children is something that I understood very, very young. And so I've tried to share that uh, in my book. And, and that the journey itself is, is one where, you know, you can be in real deep challenges. You can be in very dark places. But at the end of the day, if you don't give up, you know, oftentimes, and I say this in the book, you think that you're going 
through a, a, an incredible, and you are a breakdown on in your life. But if you can stick with it, and if you can try to understand and be determined to overcome that darkness, there's often, very often, if not all the time, a remarkable breakthrough around the corner. It brings you to that next level of consciousness and strength and determination. Such is the evolution of spirit. And so when I'm speaking to younger generations today, that's what I say. Don't give up in those moments. Those are the moments that you keep going because that's the evolution of spirit. And it strengthens your resolve to live even more when you overcome those obstacles that you're facing. I think it was also a loving message to yourself, your mom, your grandmother, and maybe the father you never knew. It was about a human healing. Sometimes in, in yeah. despite trauma and the circumstances and throwing up on the airplane and the fear of being in a school where, where you're punished for speaking your native language, all of this manifested itself into someone that said, I'm going to be an advocate for the Inuit community, or as you said, 165,000 of you, but more importantly, I think for planet Earth. So I think there was more to that book. I'm not a psychologist. I don't pretend to be, but I, <laughs> I, I read a message to yourself in that book that I thought was beautiful. I read something about that uh, or, or heard something just this recent week about that, that when someone writes a book, it's usually to themselves. And it was, you know, and I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yes. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that's what we do as authors or as writers and for the people that are you know excited about spring is coming or fresh air what yeah. is the state of the art today and what must be done so that we act with our heart mm -hmm. and our minds and our hands before it's too late as you know we rely on that ice and snow for our that's our icy highways uh, that leads us safely to our hunting and fishing grounds and changes have been happening for a long, long time now where hunters have had to reroute themselves because of the precariousness of the thinning ice where they can't travel on that same route that they have taken for a long time. And sometimes there's too much snow. Sometimes there's not enough. But nonetheless, it becomes precarious because for us, the ice and snow represent transportation and mobility. And when that starts to go, it becomes an issue of safety and security, first and foremost. And so we've got that erode, the coastal erosion is happening all throughout the Arctic. Don't forget, we are marine mammals. So we live around the coast of every one of those countries that we live in because we're marine mammal hunters. And Alaska in particular is hit the hardest because it's open water, it's open coast. And that has been eroding for the, the, the coast has been eroding for a long, long time. We, you just have to Google, uh, Shishmaruf and other new talk and others that are uh, at Kivalina, where homes have already been falling into the sea for a long time. You saw the Bering Strait surge, a huge storm that happened uh, some months ago that just ate away the land, the roads, the land. It's been happening for a long time in Alaska. Alaska, where uh, Inuit live, that, that's hit the hardest of our, all of our homelands beach slumping. You've got uh, permafrost melting where some homes have been buckling inward. They've had to be relocated. There's flooding that's happening in Alaska and other places as a result of that. And yet there's no relocation funds to relocate people more further inland in safer areas. And there's talk, there's a uh, new species of birds, new species of fish, new species of insects for some we don't have names for up there uh, that are making their way up. 
Uh, we have just below the tree line where I was born, trees that are slumping. They call them drunken trees because they've just slumped down because of the permafrost that's melting. And other areas, the permafrost is melting, creating more nutritional uh, ability for the roots to go down. So you've got lush trees. Like where I was born, we had only willows and small trees. And now you see them just growing in, in very tall and willows are very tall everywhere. So the changes are very great. It limits and, and it, uh, it minish, minimizes traditional knowledge. Like when our elders teach our younger generation, okay, this is what I'm teaching you about how to read the conditions of ice, how to read the conditions of weather patterns and so on. Um, they, but they say there's a disclaimer now because of climate change. They say, however, because of climate change, you have to be more vigilant and more cautious and more focused on your surroundings because what you see on the surface with the ice, it's not what the ice conditions are just below what you don't see because it's forming differently. And so we've got more and more seasoned hunters falling through that thinning ice. So there's lots and lots of those changes that are happening. You talked about how your grandmother and your mother channeled through you and helped show you this path. As they look down on you, what are they saying about this daughter that was torn away at age 10 and how would they describe you to their, do you call it the heavens? What do you call where they are right now? Well, I have felt that, especially my mother, I have never felt that she left my side. I mean, there were times where she couldn't be by my side when I was young and when I was growing up. Uh, but the moment she passed away, and I'm very spiritual and I see things through that lens. And I remember after she passed, immediately, and her name was Daisy. Almost everywhere I went in the world or every at every turn, there was a Daisy that I saw in terms of flowers, even a dog named Daisy who came up to me and I don't like dogs, but this one I did. I, I didn't even know the name until afterwards. Uh, anything, you know, it was just even in Russia, I remember landing and someone passed me a bouquet of daisies, you know, right up. This was all the first year she passed away. And I thought this was her way of showing me that she's very close to me and she's beside me. In that sense, they have always been close to me and beside me throughout this work and proud of me. I always finish my shows with my three takeaways, which is impossible mm. because my I have so many of them. But the first one is, I think one of the most powerful thoughts, we have to stop just thinking our way forward and we have to start feeling our way there. And mm. I think when we open our hearts and we let empathy roar, we realize that what we're doing is not just the right thing to do. It's It's the only way forward. The second one is just this whole sense of connections. You don't see silos. You don't see bureaucrats with status quo. You find a way through your narrative, through your storytelling, you find a way to connect the dots and to bring people together. And I think that's why you've been a recipient of so many awards and doctorates, because you are a force of positive change on this planet. And then the last thing is this, this piece of advice for not only for the youth, but for everybody, especially nowadays, is there's a lot of people facing circumstances that are very dark. Your idea of if you find a way through them, if you persevere, that darkness can become a remarkable light. And I can't wait to see what's next uh, with you, because I think you've just begun doing what you were called for on this planet. Oh. So thank you so much for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Well, thank you so much. And I think even just your last statement, uh, because, you know, I still go through, you know, OK, what's next? I, uh, and so your last statement has, has really um, touched me. 
my next book, I'm trying to find the time and the resources around me uh, to write on conscious leadership, uh, because I think that's what we need to do uh, with, a, with, with intention. We've tried politics, economy, technology, but it hasn't really worked. And now we have to go back to those places where we can find that common ground. We are in this together. And together, we've got this. We've got this. Joining me now is Lindsay Patrick. She's the head of strategic initiatives in ESG at RBC Capital Markets. Lindsay, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the concept of ESG is just starting to really emerge. So for the, my listeners who don't understand what that stands for, maybe, maybe you could first begin by just explaining what your role entails. I think I have one of the best roles in the financial services industry. So I wear two hats for RBC Capital Markets. And for those listeners, Capital Markets is the investment banking division of RBC. So our clients are large companies, large institutional investors, private equity firms that are looking to raise capital. And in my role, I'm responsible for the broader strategic initiatives around the division, which involves uh, setting our business performance goals and ambitions. And I'm also responsible for ESG, environmental, social and governance factors. So we work with the bank's clients to help provide them perspectives on environmental issues that matter to them, on social concerns. And then I tie it all back together with our business strategy. So um, within the financial sector, it's pretty terrific to be able to have a job that helps the broader economy, but also integrates and creates positive environmental and social impact both for the bank and for our clients. So give me an example of something you're doing. This is my Earth Day special, and we're talking about, you know, the kind of role that individuals and organizations can play to do their part. We're a bank, and as a bank, we don't have a large emissions footprint. But our biggest role in taking care of the planet is powering and fueling the economy. So it's helping to provide those industrial companies, energy companies, consumer companies with the information and the knowledge they need to make good, not only strategic business decisions as it relates to their capital, um, but also help provide them with some advice on environmental and social matters. So we help our clients, one, understand and in certain cases share emissions data to the extent that they don't have it so that they have a broader understanding, not only of the value that they're creating from a financial perspective, but the value that they're creating or the costs associated, the environmental costs associated with um, their operations and all the way down oftentimes into their supply chains. And I was looking at your LinkedIn profile uh, as sort of preparation for this. And you had a post that said 2023 will be a transformational year for sustainable finance. So when I started my career as a banker, um, you know, 20 plus years ago, ESG was really about corporate citizenship and doing the right thing by your stakeholders, primarily the communities that you operate in and the employees that uh, work for your organization. And that is still absolutely true. But over the past four to five years, there was a growing realization that this corporate sustainability, if done properly and if done authentically, can actually create value. It can create real financial value. 
because it's additional insights that are, again, as we talked about, informing how management is running a company. So what we're really excited about in 2023 is we think the sustainable finance world and the integration of ESG factors into finance is really maturing. We're getting common standards. So ESG factors are going to be reported on like financial statements. We're seeing uh, a move towards more authenticity. The clients that we work with are very clear about not overstating what they're really doing, but being really authentic in terms of where they are in their journey, what progress that they've made and where some of the challenges are. And then I think the last really about materiality. Where as a business are the levers that you can change and move and move the needle and have an impact? And then where are the areas where it's best left to government, for example, or best left to consumers to make that change? We often like in 2023 is the teenage years for the sustainable finance industry. We understand the value we're maturing into the adult, and we're now at a stage where we're really becoming who we think we need to be and taking our proper place in the finance world. And it's terrific to see. Good luck taking it from the teenage to adult years. I'm uh, such a fan of what RBC is doing with Tech for Nature, the $500 billion you put towards sustainable financing and all the other initiatives that you're doing. But the most important thing is that people like you that have the hand on the rudder and just want to see this thing go from, as you said, what might have been the past marketing initiatives and rhetoric to the kind of reality that we need as citizens of this planet. We absolutely do. Thank you, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.